Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 11. Most of the time we're going to spend in just two verses, verses 9 and 10. But we'll look, we'll read the whole passage and make reference to it. Let's go ahead and get started with that. We'll, we'll read ver, uh, Acts 18, 1 through 11. After these things, he, that is Paul, left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working for, and they were working for by trade, they were tent makers. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath, and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God whose house was next to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you. For I have many people in this city. And he settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Lord, we ask for your favor, your help, your grace. Pour it out on us, Lord. Give us insight and understanding that we can make real application of this section of Scripture to our lives, even today, even this very week, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. John Bunyan, the Puritan, who lived in the 1600s, wrote a very famous allegory of the Christian life called Pilgrim's Progress. And in this book, there is a scene in which two, two men enter a city called Vanity Fair. Uh, the two men are Christian and faithful. Faithful bears a faithful witness to the Lord when he's in Vanity Fair. And Vanity Fair is so depraved and so corrupt that when he bears witness to Christ, they attack him, they persecute him, and they end up killing him. He becomes a martyr for Christ. Christian is able to escape with his life from that place. But you know, the city of Corinth was an awful lot like Vanity Fair. It was a very godless city. I want to tell you a little bit about this city before we go into Acts chapter 18 so that we can appreciate what's happening there. Corinth was a unique place. For starters, it was one of the largest cities in the ancient world. You had Rome, which is very large, and then Antioch in Syria, which is also a very large city, but the third largest city would be Corinth. It had a population of about 200,000 people, which for those days was a very large amount. So it was a large population center. It was also a great commercial center because it was situated uh, along all the major trade routes. North and south, people could go by land, and east and west, they would take ships. And so it was like a hub of all of the trade going out to all the places of the world, kind of like the New York City of our modern day. So a very great commercial center. It was also a city of sailors. And so it's no surprise that the Greek god of the sea, Poseidon, was worshipped in this place. 
So Paul knew that if trade could radiate from Corinth, so could the gospel. It was a strategic place for him to evangelize. He didn't go to some of these outlying little villages, but he did go to the major centers of the day, and he knew that if he could plant um, a viable church in these great, big, large cities, then the church themselves would, they would reach out with the gospel to the outlying areas. In addition, Corinth was an exceedingly wicked city. Behind the city, nearly 2,000 feet above sea level, stood the temple of Aphrodite. And Aphrodite was the goddess of love and fertility. In this temple, there was 1,000 female slaves who served the goddess Aphrodite. And what they would do was go out and prostitute themselves throughout the city, bringing in money for their goddess and their temple. And so the phrase, if, if someone in those days was to use the phrase to Corinthianize, what they really meant was to practice sexual immorality. So Corinth was famous for sexual immorality. We know what the lifestyle of the people of Corinth was like because Paul wrote to them. In fact, let's just read this. If you look over at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul writes to these same people and he mentions a little bit about them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 9, Paul says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, the ones he was writing to in Corinth. That's, this describes you guys. Such were some of you, but you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. So you can tell the lifestyle that the Christians there in Corinth came out of. Uh, these folks were fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, and drunkards. But they weren't that way anymore. The drunkard had become sober. The swindler had confessed his crimes. The thief had made restitution for what he had stolen. The homosexual had left his old lifestyle and was now living a pure and chaste life. God had made them into new creations in Jesus Christ. But that's the, this is the soil out of which the fruit of corruption grew in the city of Corinth. So we have to have that in mind as we read this epistle. The gospel makes all the difference in the world in a person's life. On this second missionary journey, remember, Paul and his companions have planted churches in Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, and Athens. And Paul now leaves the city of Athens and trudges on to Corinth alone. It's about a 50-mile journey. would take him two or three days. It's amazing. We can get to any part of the world in less time than it would take someone to go 50 miles in that day. But he comes to the city of Corinth now, and he's alone. He's left Luke back in Philippi to care for this fledgling little church that's planted there. He's left Silas and Timothy in Berea to help those young believers and the new church get solid and get planted. And Paul's left to, go, to continue his evangelizing ministry. He comes to the city of Corinth. Now, he was beaten and thrown into prison in Philippi. He was run out of town in Thessalonica and Berea. He was demeaned as a babbler in Athens. And when he comes to Corinth, we find 
in Acts chapter 18, verse 6, that they resisted him and they blasphemed. So everywhere he goes, he meets opposition. And I imagine he's getting a bit discouraged by this time. In fact, I know he was, because we're going to find out that the Lord comes to him and tells him, don't be afraid any longer. And he gives him a word to encourage him in his work and in his labor for Christ, which is what I want to focus on today. I want to share just two things that the Lord gave Paul to encourage him when he was discouraged, when he was down, when he was ready to quit. He was just ready to quit ministering. We're going to find that out in a minute. He gave him friends, and he gave him promises to keep him going. And I want to speak to you first of all about the friends that the Lord gave Paul. Remember, he's alone in the city. Uh, Perhaps there were no other Christians in the city of Corinth except for two people he just happened to meet. Their names are Aquila and Priscilla. And we find them in verses 1 to 3. It says, after he left Athens, he went to Corinth and he found, just happened to find a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy, the area of Rome there, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius, Claudius was the emperor, And he had made this decree that all the Jews, probably Christian Jews, believing Jews, uh, and I don't have have time to go on to all the reasons I think that, but I think he's talking about Christians who happen to have a Jewish background. They were forced to leave that particular place. And Aquila and Priscilla, so were forced out of Italy, and they ended up coming here to Corinth. In God's providence, they meet up with the Apostle Paul, and they become fast friends for the rest of their lives. We find their names appearing six times in Scripture. Twice, we find that they hosted a church in their home. When they went to Rome, they had a church in their house. When they went to Ephesus, they had a church in their house. So they loved just opening up their house and inviting the believers in and having church right in their homes. And we also find in um, Romans chapter 16, verses 3 and 4, Paul mentions them. And he says, greet Prisca and Aquila. And then he says this, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risked their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. So they had risked their lives for the Apostle Paul. Now we don't know exactly what that situation was. It's not spelled out for us in Scripture, but it doesn't have to be. All we need to know is they were so devoted to Christ and to Paul as a friend that they were willing to lay down their life for him. So, what a great friend to have. And what a great thing that the Lord at this time in Paul's life, when he has nobody else, when he is discouraged, when he is afraid, when he's thinking about quitting, God sends him some friends to buttress his faith and to enable him to continue. And what I want to just encourage you with today is God has given us Christian friends for a reason. And I don't think we take advantage of them the way we ought. I think we take them for granted. But I think the Lord wants you to invest in other Christian friends and to receive their ministry to you when you need it. When you're discouraged, when perhaps you're depressed, when you feel like giving up on something that the Lord has called you to, you need to call on your Christian friends. You need to get eye to eye with them and sit down with them and unburden your soul and tell them what's going on in your life and ask them to pray for you. And allow them to minister to you. Receive the encouragement that they can give to you. Think right now, who are the people in your life 
the real people that were, were within driving distance in your life that you, if you needed to, you could call them up and say, I'd really like to meet with you if I could. Do you have anybody like that? It's an awful shame if you don't have anyone like that in your life. We need each other, brothers and sisters. Well, I'm talking about fellowship now. Strengthening one another in the Lord by, by our faith, sharing the word of God, listening, loving that individual, praying for them. This is the heart of the Christian community. This is what the church is all about. We're to be a strengthening agent for each other. Church is not just showing up at a meeting and going home. Church is, is sharing life with each other and sharing the burdens of one another. It's family. The Bible describes the church as brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters, not just an institution somewhere. It's a family, the family of God. And that's how we're supposed to live out our lives. So I just want to encourage you, if, if you're going through a hard time, don't do it alone. That's what we're here for. That's what the church is all about. Call someone up and say, hey, can we get go over to Starbucks and have some coffee. I just need to meet with you for a little while. And what a beautiful thing when the church really does that. So the Christian life is never to be meant to live in isolation. And if there's ever a choice, when it's between staying home and watching a sermon online or getting together face to face with your brothers and sisters, I hope you will choose to meet with them. It's much, much more powerful than, than being an individual, isolated, looking at a screen. It, it's much better if you can be, look eye to eye, eyeball to eyeball to someone, and you can hug them, and you can embrace them, and you can talk to them in person. You can actually cry with that person if you need to. So we need to recognize the value of personal, face-to-face -face Christian fellowship and make that a priority in our lives. And value that. Value that blessing that you have available to you. There was a time when Paul had practically nobody and God brought him someone. Aquila and his wife Priscilla and they encouraged him in the Lord. I was just talking to a family member recently and they were saying since COVID they got used to just staying home and watching church on TV. And they don't actually go to the meetings any longer. They just stay home and look at Look at it on their computer screen. And I thought, what a shame. What a shame because you're missing out. There's so much more for you. So the Lord has encouraged Paul with friends. And we need to encourage ourselves and the Lord with friends. And we need to be a friend that can encourage others. Second thing, the Lord encouraged Paul with promises. We find th three promises back in Acts 18 verses 9 and 10. The Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision. Now, this is not the first time that the Lord gave Paul a vision. Do you remember when he was converted on the Damascus Road? The Lord came to him in a vision, and he said, Ananias is a man named Ananias is going to come to you, and he's going to lay his hands on you and pray for you that you'll be healed. He told him that in advance. And that's exactly what happened. So that was a vision. And then in chapter 16, Paul also got another vision. And in this vision, there was a man in Macedonia calling over, hey, come over here and help us. And so Paul took that to mean, oh, we're supposed to go over there. Up till then, he didn't know where he was supposed to go to minister. So they left and they went to Philippi and a church was planted there. So th this isn't new for Paul to have a vision. So the Lord appeared to Paul in the night in a vision. And he says to him, do not be afraid any longer. But go on speaking and do not be silent. And what does that tell you? Do not be afraid any longer. 
That meant he was afraid. Hey, folks, Paul was a man like you and I. He wasn't some perfect angelic saint who had no problems. Paul was afraid. I mean, wouldn't you, if you had been beaten and stoned and whipped and thrown into prison, you almost lost your life by being stoned before, every town you go to, you're run out of town. I mean, after a while, that's going to wear on you. And Paul, at this point in his life, was feeling fear. And the Lord wanted to strengthen his servant. And he says, don't be afraid any longer. Uh, go on speaking. Don't be silent. So that tells me Paul must have been considering, maybe I should just give this thing up, at least for a while. Lay low. Let, let my troubles pass over. I'll get back to it eventually, but I'm just going to stop for a while. But the Lord said, don't do that. Go on speaking. Don't be silent. And then he gives him three promises to help him in his work. Number one, for I am with you, the presence of Christ. I am with you. And that one promise alone, if we really banked our soul on that promise, would be enough to help us through our trials of life. Just to realize that Jesus Christ is with us. I mean, how simple can you get, but how profound can you get? Jesus Christ is with us. In Hebrews 13, we read, he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we may confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid, what will man do to me? So here's the Apostle Paul in Corinth. Men were rising up against him like they always did. And he encouraged himself in the promise of Jesus Christ. Christ is with me. What's that old saying? God and, God and one is a majority. I mean, it doesn't matter how many are against you. If, you, you. if God is with you, there's a majority there. When Jesus gave the 11 apostles that staggering command in Matthew 28 about going into all the world, I mean, think about it, 11 men, go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations. Lord, that's beyond me. How can we ever do that? He says, lo, I am with you always even to the end of the age. There's, there's your promise that you need to do what I've called you to do. I'm with you. Now, if I wasn't with you, then yeah, maybe you should stagger in your, boot, in your boots and be afraid. And, but no, I'm with you. I'm with you. So you can do what I'm calling you to do. It's like the little wimpy boy in school who's always getting beaten up by the bully. And after about three times, his big burly brother says to him, uh, don't worry about that bully from now on, because I'm going to be right beside you. I'm going to be right at your back. If anybody ever tries to touch you, they're going to have to deal with me. So how does that little wimpy boy feels after that? He feels pretty powerful, pretty strong. He can strut around. He doesn't have to worry about a thing anymore, because if anyone tries to tackle him, hey, he just looks behind him. There's my big brother. You deal with him. And it's the same way with us. The Lord is with you. What do you have to be afraid of if the Lord is with you? You know, in our flesh we fear, but in the spirit we can soar like, like eagles when we know that the Lord is with us. When you're in a hospital room and your husband's not there beside you, and your mother's not available, the Lord is with you, right? Wherever you happen to be, the presence of Christ is such a powerful promise to you. Remind yourself of that. When you start to feel discouraged and down, just tell yourself, Christ, 
Christ Jesus, you're with me. You're right beside me. You're driving in the car with me. You're on this walk with me today. You're in my home at my, at my breakfast table with me. You're, you set a plate for him there. He's with you. <laughs> what, a, what a beautiful promise to base your life on to face whatever trial God has called you to. Now, if he wasn't with you, yeah, be afraid. But if he's with you, that banishes fear. Second promise. And no man will attack you in order to harm you. The promise of Christ's protection. First his presence, and then his protection. No man will attack you in order to harm you. Now they did attack him, but they didn't harm him. They attacked him because in the very next verses, they, this crowd got Paul, and they, they dragged him before the governor, Galileo, who was the judge, and they, they wanted to have the judge throw the book at him. But actually the Lord did protect him because they didn't have, even have to open their words to defend themselves. The governor, Galileo himself, spoke up for Paul. So Christ's protection was upon Paul. They tried to get at him, but they couldn't do it. They couldn't really harm him. Now this is a, this is a, a particular promise to the Apostle Paul for this particular situation. The promise to him is that no man was going to be able to physically harm him, and they didn't. This wasn't a universal promise for every Christian that know that they would never be harmed physically, because we know many Christians have been harmed physically. Many, many Christians have lost their lives for Christ over the years. Just read Christian history, and we, we know that's the case. Many were fed to lions in the Colosseums, they were burned at the stake. Some of them were lit up as torches for crazy Nero, and he'd race around in his chariot at night. I mean, horrible, horrible things have been, been done to believers over the years. Physically, we have been harmed, but I think there is a promise here. Maybe we can't claim the promise that we will always be protected physically from harm, but we can claim the promise that Christ will protect us spiritually. They can get at your body, perhaps, but they can't get at your soul. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus said, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. So fear God, not man. All man can do is take your body, but he can't take your soul. And Paul in Romans chapter 8 will say, for I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things created, or <laughs> I'm forgetting the last few, but he says, he mentions a bunch of stuff, and he says, none of those things can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can't do it. Man cannot separate you from the Lord Jesus Christ. He might be able to get at your body, but he can't get at your soul. He can't get at your spirit. He can't stop communion between you and your Savior. That is unbreakable. So praise God. The power or the promise of his, not only his presence, but his protection on you. In Luke 21, verse 16, Jesus says, you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death, and you'll be hated by all because of my name. Now this is interesting, yet not a hair of your head will perish. Now what in the world could Jesus mean? He said you're going to die, 
but not a hair of your head's going to perish. What's he talking about? I think what he means is that, yes, they can take your body, but they can't really get at your soul, your relationship to Christ. That's the hair of the head. None of you, the hair of your head will not perish. You are safe in my hands. None shall snatch you out of my hand. None can separate you from the love of Christ our Lord. So, praise the Lord. Many times he actually does protect us physically, just because of his mercies, traveling mercies, right? Many times we should have been dead when we look back at our lives. Thank God for all those times. Um, sometimes he may send an angel to help us. We know that they're ministering spirits sent to render aid to those who inherit salvation. Sometimes by his providence, he just changes situations around to protect his people. But even if God does not protect us physically, we are protected spiritually. And that's what's far more important. Far more important is that your eternal salvation is secure in the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you start to feel yourself being discouraged or down, remind yourself of this. Nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. Nothing. Nothing can snatch me out of the hand of Jesus Christ. He's got me. And then there's a third promise. And this is in verse 10. He says, The reason that I want you to not be afraid and to go on speaking and not be silent is because I have many people in this city. That's why. That's why I don't want you to stop. There's work for you to do here, Paul. I've got many people in this city and you're going to be my instrument to reach these people. So this is the promise not of his presence or his protection, but of God's predestination. Because he has many people in this city. Now think about that word have. I have. What tense is that? Is that past tense, present, or future? It's present tense. Right now I have them. But yet they weren't converted yet. Because there wasn't even a church planted there. Well, there's the beginnings of one, right? We read about earlier that some of the Jews had come to faith from this particular synagogue. But Jesus has many people in the city. So it's a present tense word. And the word have, I have them, that denotes ownership. If I have something, it's mine. It's my possession. Christ is saying, I've got people. I own them. They're mine. They're in this city, and I'm going to use you to draw them out. So I believe what the Lord is talking about here is that he has chosen a particular people, predestined them to salvation, and Paul must not stop his ministry out of fear, but go on speaking because the Lord is going to use him to call out these people from their lives of sin, We've, we've already read about these debauched lives and bring them as trophies of grace into the kingdom of God. When Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.10, he said, For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. So why did Paul, why was he willing to endure all of the suffering that he endured? He tells you right here. I endure it all for the sake of those who were chosen. 
That's why I'm willing to do it. I know there are people all over the world that are chosen. God has called me to be like a magnet, to draw the iron filings out of the sand to the magnet. Christ is the magnet. They're being drawn through the gospel, the preaching of the word of God. They're coming to faith. The elect are coming into the church. And Paul says, I'm willing to endure all things. I'm willing to be beaten, whipped, stoned, almost to death, shipwrecked, I mean, he gives a list in 2 Corinthians 11, that's like the length of your arm, of all the sufferings that he went through. I endure all of that for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they may obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus, and with that salvation, eternal glory. So when, when Paul is in heaven, he's going to meet a lot of the people that were drawn to faith through his ministry, and they're together going to share eternal glory with Christ, rejoicing in the Lord together. Paul could say in 2 Timothy, the Lord knows those who are his. He knows them. He knows who they are. There are sheep and goats in this world, and the Lord knows who the sheep are. He's had his eye on them. He has had his hand upon them from all eternity. He has ordained that they would come to faith in Jesus Christ. So here we're brought face to face with the doctrine of God's predestination, which is given to Paul to encourage him when he was down. Now, if there were no promise like this, that would discourage me because I know that the Bible says that people are dead in trespasses and sins. How in the world is anyone ever going to come to Jesus Christ and be saved if they're dead and can, they're helpless to move towards Christ? But if we know that God has a people and that they are going to be called for whom he did predestinate, these he also called. Those who are predestined are going to be called into the kingdom. Since we know that, that should encourage us to, be, to labor in the kingdom, to give ourselves to the work of Christ, because God's got a people he's going to bring, and he's going to use those who are willing to avail themselves, and put themselves out there, open their mouths and speak, show them by their works of love, by their, by their lips and by their life, that what Christ is all about. So here are the promises. The presence of Christ, the protection of Christ, and the predestination of Christ. And those are promises that we can take and that we can count on when we need to. Is anyone here feeling maybe a little like Paul? Afraid? The Lord says, do not be afraid any longer. Don't be afraid. If you're feeling fear, this is a passage for you. If you're feeling discouraged, this is a passage for you. The Lord is with you. The Lord is spiritually protecting you. And the Lord is going to use you because he already has a people. If, if the Lord were to give us a vision like he gave to Paul, he would probably say something like what he said to them. Brian, don't be afraid. Go on speaking. Don't be silent. I'm with you. No man's going to be able to attack you in order to harm you because I've got many people in Rancho Cordova or Sacramento or wherever. And just insert your name. The Lord wants to use you and I for his glory. And so I guess the main bottom line encouragement for all of us is to, to be active in the work of Christ, to find ways that we serve the Lord with our lives. To not just let our lives slip by day by day, moment by moment with nothing to show for it. Look for opportunities. Pray for opportunities. And when the Lord gives you one, take it. 
Seize it. If, if someone calls you and needs something and you're available, that's the Lord's appointment for you that day. Uh, if there are lost people where you work and you're able to start a lunchtime Bible study, wow, what a great, I remember doing that when I, uh, when I worked in Hayward. We started a little lunchtime Bible study, which the Lord used. And I, I remember that with fondness. If there are people in your neighborhood that seem to be open to the gospel, meet with them. In other words, pour out your life on behalf of others. Ask the Lord to show you where you should be laboring in the vineyard. Ask him to show you what are my gifts and how can I use them for the kingdom? And the Lord will be with you. The Lord will protect you because the Lord's got a people. Amen? Amen. Lord, would you do that for us today? Direct us, Lord, into the vineyard. to Show us how you want us to serve you, Lord. And let us do that with all of our heart, all of our might. Lord, if anyone is struggling with fear or discouragement or depression today, would you lift that from them? Remind them that you're with them. Remind them that no man is going to be able to take their soul. That they have a communion with you that will last forever. And remind them, Lord, that their efforts are going to be fruitful. So please do that work, Lord. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.